Don't you ever take for granted the privilege of getting to go to church. That's under attack. There is a reproach that comes with being a follower of Christ. We in America have tried to reshape the whole church so that it's palatable and likable in the culture. A church that is accepted well with the culture is usually not accepted well with Christ. The church is a fortress, and a fortress is strength. A fortress is might. Not only a center of defense, but a place of strategic planning and offense. Our God does not expect us to wait for the darkness to enclose around us. He expects us to take up His banner and fight the darkness with His light. You want to know what the biggest problem with America is? The wolf is this country. Gave in. Gave in to public pressure. Gave in to political correctness. One of the greatest curses this country has ever had to deal with is political correctness. Preparing the Christian to shine the light against the darkness of this world. Welcome to Our Mighty Fortress Podcast. I'm your host, Ron Miller, and welcome to the show. I have a very fascinating subject to cover today. But first, please go ahead and hit that follow or subscribe button on the podcast platform in which you're listening to us upon. We have several social media platforms, all sorts of material that you can listen to and read. Check us out on our fan page on Facebook when you type in at Our Mighty Fortress. That page is growing more and more every day. We love to have you. Come check out the new content we post there. You can also take a look at our website, OurMightyFortress.com, where you will find all of our articles, videos, and even a link to our merch store to help support the work. And of course, if you do feel so motivated to donate to the work that we do here, feel free to do so through our website in the established PayPal link. If, of course, we have helped you in some way through our work, please tell us at OurMightyFortress at gmail.com. By following and supporting the podcast, you let me know that you care about the subjects that we discuss. Today, I would like to address a very interesting theological question that arises when somebody reads Luke chapter 16, verses 22 through 31. We'll actually go through the verses later. Sometimes, when we just read the stories of the Bible, we have to really ponder and think about what's actually taking place and the context and if you want to learn how to study your Bible, I did a podcast on that, podcast number 20. But this particular question arises with a story that Jesus is telling. And we have to wonder what message Jesus Christ is trying to paint here. When you read these scriptures, one can ask questions like, for instance, where is Abraham's bosom? And is this talking about hell before men are judged? Where did human souls go before the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ? How does the idea of Abraham's bosom fit into the grand plan of God? And does it exist as a separate compartment of hell or Hades? There are many volumes of books written on this topic and its associates of heaven and hell, of course. There are many denominational influences that have put their own opinions in on this topic, and their theology influences all of their interpretations. But I like what one well-known theologian once said, Lewis Schaefer. He said, quote, No student of the scriptures should be satisfied to traffic only in the results of the study of other men. End quote. 
what he's saying there is you just don't rely on what somebody says. You research it out for yourself. That's a very important concept. From the writings of the Old Testament prophets to the New Testament writers to the church fathers and through the centuries of denominational influence, there are certain trends that we can trace through not only history but through the scriptures and we can find the truth. Through this examination of scripture and the enlightenment of God's natural revelation through modern science, one can narrow down to be able to find the truth. This topic does have a very interesting and enlightening spider effect that goes into other areas of systematic theology, but we're not going to cover all of those in this podcast, but it's still very interesting. And I believe that once we get into this study, you'll start to think of some of your own. I'll cite a lot of scripture, but I'll only read certain ones you have to be able to read all the rest of the ones that I cite for yourself just for time's sake, okay? Otherwise, this podcast will be extremely long. If something is biblical, keep this in mind, if something is biblical, then it should be throughout the scripture itself. If you're a critical thinker, the implications of this subject should cause you to ponder on other supposed hard scriptures to interpret. It may enlighten you on what's taking place. Because of rather recent discoveries in science, we can come to get a little bit of a better understanding of this universe and its relation with scriptures, especially in dealing with this subject. There will be statements examined in scripture that God makes that will come to light with a fuller meaning in its context. What do I mean? An example of this would be when Matthew Fontaine Mari in 1929 He was a naval officer who took the book of Psalms, chapter 8 and verse 8, that said, uh, talking about the pathways of the seas. He went and discovered currents in the oceans through his experiments. This, of course, is interesting because man, thousands of years later, finally discovered what God originally stated back in the book of Psalms. While this study of The topic of Abraham's bosom is not going to be exhaustive given the limits of his podcast, but the topics of hell and Hades will be examined. Abraham's bosom is going to be examined as well as where God lives in the heaven of heavens. And we're going to take a further look into that term, Abraham's bosom, and the theology that surrounds this idea. Put on your critical thinking caps, bust out your Bible, and get ready for some deep theology. With that introduction, let's get right into this. I want to start with defining and describing the word hell. The idea of hell is very frightening to mankind, and of course, rightfully so. This is the idea of retribution of God for our sins because he is holy. Hell, or the place where the wicked go after their physical death and the judgment at the white throne of Jesus Christ, brings guilt inside man's heart and either makes them uh, choose to repent or it makes them choose to hate God even more. God himself communicates that this retribution is eternal for the rebellion of man who, in essence, rejects the blood atonement of Jesus Christ. The English word given for hell has many biblical Hebrew and Greek words associated with it, and thus is the cause of this controversy and 
diversity on the topic. The word, or the Hebrew word, Sheol, is found in Scripture over 65 times. Of that's only translated the pit three times, the grave 31 times, and hell 31 times. In the New Testament, the Greek word Hades is used 11 times, with it being translated hell 10 times, and the grave only once. There are three other words used for hell, and they are Tartarus, which is only used once, Gehenna, which originates from the Valley of Hinnom outside of Jerusalem, uh, that is used 12 times, and Tophet, which is used nine times. In the book of Revelation, there seems to be a second type of hell called the Lake of Fire. This was originally created for Satan and the angels that rebelled against God. That's in Matthew 25 and verse 41. Each one of the words used to describe hell has a context, and some of these do have pagan roots. What do I mean? In the Greek language, the word Hades is a reference to the Greek god of death, but it's also used for the underworld. The word Tartarus was the realm beneath Hades, made for the Greek titans and especially wicked people. Now, when these words are used, they're not in reference to Greek mythology the, you know, itself, but it's used as illustrations to get the New Testament writer's point across. Hell has been painted in various pictures outside the biblical references. The classic book, Dante's Inferno, paints a very descriptive picture of one man's imagination as to what the various levels of hell must be like. You say, what? Levels of hell? Yes, the scripture does teach that. We're not given a whole lot of detail as to what that all means, but we're told that there are different degrees of punishment. The scripture does give this idea of varying degrees of hell in Matthew 11, 20 through 24, Luke 12, 47 through 48, and Luke 20, 45 through 47. There is no injustice with God, so it would naturally flow that the degrees of suffering would vary greatly and depend upon the relationship to the sinner's life on earth. Dante's Inferno's poem is just the thoughts and creativity of the author, but it does relay man's fear of being judged for his sins against God. Many times in scripture, and the description of hell is mentioned. But none is so clear as the New Testament reference found in Luke chapter 16, verses 22 through 31. Let me read it. Quote, And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And in hell he lift up his eyes, being in torments, and seeth Abraham afar off, and Lazarus in his, in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus, that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted, and thou art tormented. And besides all this, between us and you there was a great gulf fixed, so that they which would pass... From hence to you cannot, neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. And he said, I pray thee therefore, Father, thou, that thou wouldst, wouldst send him to my father's house. For I have five brethren, that he may testify unto them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Abraham saith unto him, 
they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, Nay, Father Abraham, but if one went unto them from the dead, they would repent. And he said unto them, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. End quote. In short summary, this parable given about hell by Jesus Christ is very unique from any other mention of the subject. Hell is mentioned with a rich man that is in torment and agony, a torment so agonizing that only a drop of water is asked to cool his tongue. He communicates with Abraham, who has a beggar named Lazarus on his bosom whom he is comforting. The rich man demonstrates memory of his life, and he asks Abraham to send Lazarus back from the dead to tell his family about the place. Abraham responds that though one would raise from the dead, they would not be persuaded because they have Moses and the prophets. Now think about this. Did this incidentally come to pass in John chapter 11 with the friend of Jesus who was also named Lazarus when he died and Jesus brought him back from the grave? The Pharisees were not even concerned with the fact that a miracle took place and a man rose from the dead. But instead, they hated Jesus that much and hated Lazarus that much that they wanted to kill Lazarus and they wanted to kill Jesus. But that must be a coincidence that all took place in a relatively short amount of time. And on a separate note, you got to understand how crazy the Pharisees must have been because, I don't know, just out of self-preservation, if I saw a man who claimed to have divine powers, and he rose somebody from the dead, that would be the last person that I would want to mess with. But yet, these guys wanted to try to kill Jesus and kill Lazarus a second time, mind you. The theologian J.C. Ryle makes an interesting commentary on this verse when he says, quote, The greatest miracles would have no effect on men's hearts if they will not believe God's word. End quote. It is interesting to note that the rich man did not ask Abraham for reprieve from his torment in hell. That's interesting to note. The parable of the rich man definitely proves that death is a turning point in the existence of the human soul and the everlasting state of it. What is at question is not the validity of the destination of lost man in the torment of hell. So let's just settle that here and now. There is a hell that unbelievers will go to one day at the white throne judgment of Jesus Christ. The question that we're going to ask in this podcast is if there is in fact a division of hell slash Hades where the lost and the saved uh, got separated into before the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Now, you may not be necessarily familiar with this entire subject, so if that's the case, just bear with me and read along through the scriptures so you can come to the kind of uh, correct interpretation. But uh, those that may listen who come from a different theological perspective, particularly dispensationalism, this may tweak your ears a little bit because this is a topic, Abraham's bosom, that's not preached on very often because it's so confusing and it doesn't jive with the rest of scriptures. This is why people refer to just charts and graphs uh, that you know some previous theologian of old time had drawn rather than the scriptures itself. But let's first look at the arguments presented for the validation of Abraham's bosom uh, as being a division between hell and Hades. So let's start with what we know about the story. 
Jesus was at dinner with the Pharisees during the telling of this parable. Jesus told various parables at this point to include the lost sheep parable, the lost silver piece, the prodigal son, the rich man's steward, Lazarus and the rich man, and having faith the size of a mustard seed. Many of these parables relate to the covetousness and lack of real spirituality of the Pharisees. He was going after the Pharisees. That's very important to note. We find that Jesus related various principles through these messages based upon uh, principles coming out of the Old Testament. There are many who will state that they believe that this is not a parable, but in fact a real description by Jesus Christ of some factual event that took place in a place called Abraham's bosom. It is said that one of these proofs is that this is the only parable that uses proper names, and this is true. Another argument is that the Greek word, by definition, puts forth a dual compartmented underworld. These two places are called hell and paradise. Let's take a look at that word paradise. The term paradise is used on the cross with Jesus Christ and, and the thief that's beside him. When the thief next to Jesus chooses to believe on him as the son of God, Jesus responds to him that he will today be in paradise because of the thief's belief. The term paradise is used again with the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 4, and with again with the Apostle John in Revelation chapter 2 and verse 7. Both times, the, the two latter times, uh, the word outside Jesus' statement is used in reference to the heaven of heavens, or essentially where God dwells. It is stated by this view that the term paradise changed after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that there were, you know, all souls decide, uh, went to the heaven of heavens to wait until the second coming of the Lord. So those who were believers in the Old Testament were supposed to be packed into this place called Abraham's bosom or paradise until uh, Jesus would come and pay the, you know, the price for our sins and then this particular belief says that after that happens, then they all go to heaven to stand by until the second coming. Okay, This view has Jesus later stating that he had the keys, Revelation 1.18, to death and hell, which he supposedly descended into the lowest parts of the earth to get the first fruits of the resurrection and free the captives held in Abraham's bosom and set captivity free. The verses for these are Matthew 27, verses 52 through 33, and Ephesians chapter 4, verses 8 through 10. Now, one of the more powerful arguments to back up this particular theory is that Jesus stated in John chapter 3 and verse 13, quote, And no man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man, which is in heaven, end quote. Without the theory of Abraham's bosom, this verse would be in direct conflict with 2 Kings chapter 2 and verse 11, which states that Elijah went up into heaven by a whirlwind. Also, the idea that man ascended to heaven after death would seem to contradict as well. This whole theological theory of Abraham's bosom is wrapped around God and the souls of men being fixed in time, space, and matter. Before Jesus told this parable, the idea of a dual 
compartmented Hades, or hell, was already in belief. The Greeks believed that the souls of men either went to Tartarus if they were evil and Elysium if they were worthy. We see some of the same ideas of compartmented spaces in Hebrew literature and the Hellenization of Judaism that led to the doctrine of purgatory written of, like, for instance, in the book of Enoch, quote, and there was in it four hollow places, deep and wide and very smooth. How smooth were the hollow places and deep and dark to look at? Then Raphael answered, one of the holy angels who was with me and said unto me, these hollow places would have been created for this purpose, and the spirits of the souls of the dead shall assemble therein. Yea, all the souls of the children of men should assemble there. End quote. The book of Enoch has been estimated to be written around the 2nd century B.C., and this comes after the book of Second Maccabees, which says in chapter 12, verses 41 through 42 and 44 through 45, it also talks about a compartment of hell where it says, quote, All men therefore praising the Lord, the righteous judge who opened things that were hid, betook themselves into prayer and besought him that the sin committed might wholly be put out of remembrance. Besides, noble Judas exhorted the people that keep themselves from sin for as much as they saw before their eyes, the things that came to pass for their sins, who for the, for those that were slain for, if he had not hoped that they were slain, that they might be risen again, that he might be uh, superfluous and vain to pray for the dead. And also that he perceived that there were, was great favor laid upon those who died godly. And it was a holy and good thought whereupon he made a reconciliation for the dead that they might be delivered from sin, end quote. Both passages describe what the Catholic doctrine adopts of what's called limbus in Latin or purgatory. Evangelical Christianity as a whole rejects this notion given that both of these books are not considered scripture. So, what has to be wrestled with from the scriptures is how expansive is this idea of a compartmented Hades. Before the other side of the argument can be shown, the breakdown of the Hebrew world, Sheol, must be analyzed. Sheol must be used both for death and hell, depending upon the context. William G.T. Shedd provides a very good breakdown of this word, and it should be noted. The first reason given is that Sheol depicts a future place of retribution and divine judgment. We see these in the following scriptures. Job chapter 21 verse 13 and chapter 26 and verse 6. Psalm 9.17, Proverbs 5.5, 5, 9.18, 15.11, chapter 23 verse 14, 27.20 and the book of Deuteronomy chapter 32 and verse 22. The second reason that is given that there is not another proper name for hell in the Old Testament outside Sheol. Tophet is often used as a metaphorical term and it's not really used that often. If the word Sheol does not have a meaning for God's retribution place for sinners, then there is no other place in the Old Testament that it's mentioned, that type of concept anyways. A third reason is that Sheol is mentioned as a place for the wicked and their suffering, and not once is it named for one of the righteous. 
The fourth evidence for Sheol being a place of retribution is that it seems to have no separation with spiritual and eternal death. The book of Ezekiel chapter 33 and verse 11 says, quote, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live, end quote. This is an example of the context of death. But Proverbs chapter 27 and verse 20 says, quote, Hell, or Sheol, and destruction are never full, end quote. This depicts the context of eternal punishment. So it's talking about hell in that context. There are only two contexts given in which the word Sheol should be considered carefully. Jacob said in Genesis chapter 37 and verse 35 said, quote, I will go into Sheol unto my son mourning, end quote. This is saying that after he thinks Joseph is dead, he will mourn for his son until he dies. In each of those word usages, the idea of an intermediate part of Sheol for the righteous is not suggested whatsoever. The word either depicts death or hell. Well, that's an interesting uh, put together of words. We'll see that in the New Testament. We see similar uses of the word Hades as well as Sheol. The scripture definitions and the Greek definition of Hades are quite different as one is a single compartment and the other is a dual compartment. This whole idea of a dual compartment of Hades is one that is wrapped around Jehovah God being bound to time itself. The honest question you have to ask is, before the cross, where did the saints of God go? This is actually a podcast unto itself, but let me just give you a glimpse. The argument that refutes the idea of a compartmented hell is a very compelling one. There are some issues in scripture that one has to address when it comes to this very strange theology. The reason why I say strange is because it's nowhere else taught in history except for eight, the late 1800s slash early 1900s. But that's uh, I'll talk about that later. On the outside, it seems that this doctrine makes sense when you read the scriptures. and you, But that's because you were told what to believe when you're reading it. But upon further investigation, and if you let the scripture speak for itself you come away with a different conclusion if you don't let your presuppositions corrupt what you're reading out of the text. This happens all the time. If this was a major doctrine, it is strange that the early church and the church fathers did not teach this. We find that even in the time of the Reformation, the prevailing idea of a compartmented hell was not even in their theology. Quote, the substance of the Reformed view, then, is that the intermediate state for the saved is heaven without the body, and the final state for the saved is heaven with the body, that the intermediate state for the lost is hell without the body, and the final state for the lost is hell with the body. In the Reformed, or Calvinistic eschatology, there is no intermediate Hades before heaven and hell, which the good and evil inhabit in common. When this earthly existence is ended, the only specific places and states are heaven and hell, end quote. The view of John Calvin primarily had to do with predestination and election of the saints and that they were chosen from the foundation of the world. 
while this is not a defense for the reformed position, it should be noted that the scripture does state in several places some very peculiar verses that clarify why the reformers did not hold to a compartmented hell where people went to. What am I talking about? In Matthew 25, verse 34, it says, quote, Come ye blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. End quote. In Luke 11.50, it says that the blood of all the prophets which was shed from the foundation of the world may be required of this generation. John 17.24 says, Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which thou hast given me, for thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. End quote. Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 4 says, According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. Both Hebrews 4.23 and 9.26 state about Jesus' sufferings and works that have been done from the foundation of the world. Revelation 13.8 states that the Lamb was slain from the foundation of the world. Now that's very powerful. Think about that one. Finally, Revelation 17 and verse 8 states, quote, Whose names were not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world. This phrase is very curiously contradictive for those who might hold to the theology of a compartmented hell. If the lamb was slain from the foundation of the world, then why would Old Testament saints who clearly from the book of Hebrews believe by faith, but instead they're just going to be sent to a holding place where they had to wait for Jesus Christ to come to pay for their sins. God is outside of time itself as stated in Isaiah chapter 57 and verse 15, which reads, for thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, end quote. Now, while it is entirely possible that God could still put Old Testament saints into this supposed compartmented section of Hades, it's highly unlikely given the various other statements about the topic. The plain reading of scripture in Jesus' parable shows that he's speaking to a group of Pharisees who were covetous. J. Dwight Pentecost makes a note about this when he stated, quote, Christ now addressed a word to the Pharisees who had been sneering at him to show them that riches would admit them into God's presence. In this parable, Christ drew a contrast between the wealthy man and the beggar, contrary to the Pharisaic concept that the poor were hated by God and that the wealthy were loved by God. Jesus said that Lazarus died and was carried unto Abraham's side, end quote. The definitions for Sheol, Hades, and Tartarus themselves are congruent, and that the compartmented hell does not stand up to such scrutiny. This entire idea is based upon Grecian mythology and is very similar to the idea of purgatory given in 2 Maccabees. This branch of theology essentially places Jehovah God within the realm of time itself, and it's purely unbiblical. Now, there is a concept that is very, very important to help you understand your Bible and to understand what I just said about God being outside of time. There is not 
only one heaven in word usage, but there are in fact three heavens. The word heaven first occurs in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1 when it says, In the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. Notice that the word heaven is singular. That's very important. Many people believe that this is talking about the heaven where God lives, but this is in fact talking about the universe and the earth. If you keep moving on to chapter 1 and verse 8, you see another heaven created by God at this time, and that is the atmosphere of the earth. When you get to Genesis chapter 2 and verse 1, it says, quote, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them, end quote. Did you catch that? The word heavens is now plural. The word for heaven in the biblical Hebrew is shemayim, and the M sound in Hebrew is like putting an S at the end of an English word to make it plural. In Hebrew, there are words that are naturally plural that can be used both in the singular and plural context. The word shemayim is one of those words, so you have to let the context tell you what the how, how the word is being used. There are three heavens talked about in scriptures. The atmosphere, the universe, and the heaven of heavens where God lives. Nowhere, I repeat, absolutely nowhere in scripture does God tell us anything about the heaven of heavens being created. You can look throughout your entirety of your Bible and he will never tell you anything about it. He only talks about the two heavens, the first and second heavens, the atmosphere and the universe. But he never tells you about the third heaven and anything about it being created. Way too many Christians have this very strange belief that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit were just floating around before Genesis 1-1 in this like white void until one day they decided to create something. They created a throne room and angels and the universe and the earth. And I'm sorry, but Genesis 1-1 does not say that. If we let go of that absurd belief, Many other scriptures start opening up to us, like the concept of Abraham's bosom and its true meaning. To explain this notion about God not being within the realm of time, let's lay a foundation. The scripture sets out several verses that support this notion, like Isaiah 57.15 that I previously mentioned, and Habakkuk 1.13, which reads, quote, Thou art of purer eyes than to behold evil and canst not look on iniquity, end quote. It's talking about God not being able to even look upon evil. The entire universe is marred with sin and is set towards destruction. Stars are blowing up. Planets are being destroyed. And even the earth itself is set for destruction. Science, of course, calls this the second law of thermodynamics. And what's even crazier is that time itself is unraveling. Now, I try to explain this to even more veteran pastors, and they have a very, very difficult time with this. You don't have to be, or you don't have to completely understand it to know that it's without a doubt verifiably true, and the scripture talks about this. This was well known to the ancient Jews of the Old Testament. This was well known to ancient Christians, early Christians, the early church. 
It was lost for a time. And then we kind of forgot that God is outside of time. This very truth confounds even the unbelieving scientists and it leaves them in wonder. They can't just wrap their minds around how entropy can just unravel time itself, but they can measure it and they know it to be true. And that, my friends, is what sin does to the universe. The scripture plainly depicts the situation of the universe and, and the condition that it's in when sin entered into the world in Romans 5.12. They can call it the second law of thermodynamics, but Christians know it as the effects of sin upon the universe. Now, if God hates sin and can't even look upon it, then how is the heaven of heavens contained within the frame of the time and universe, this sin-cursed universe? It just doesn't happen. An astrophysicist named Paul Davies, who is a well-known uh, scientist in his field, he says, quote, Western culture can't seem to divest itself to the belief that the existence of time as an independently real entity God-given and absolute. People can accept that clocks may do funny things and that the human mind might play tricks, but they don't want to attribute such phenomena to time itself, only to the way we experience or measure time." End quote. It was mentioned before that modern science confirms various aspects of scripture, though the secularists, they're not going to claim that to be so. We've shown that with Psalms 8.8 8, with the currents of the ocean and how one God-fearing, God-believing Christian took Psalms 8.8 8 to discover currents in the ocean. With the emergence of the general theory of relativity, it clears up several passages of scripture that were once hard to interpret. What am I talking about? The phrase about something being done from the foundation of the world is such an example. Albert Einstein in his theory of relativity states that time dilation is the actual difference of elapsed time between two events as measured by observers, either moving relative to each other or differently situated from gravitational masses, end quote. To simplify this, it means that time passes differently depending upon your rate of speed, your acceleration, the nature of your environment, mass, and the gravitational forces acting upon it. Time itself is considered a property, or if I can simplify it even more, it's a thing. That's why entropy or sin itself is unraveling it. I know it sounds crazy to, to even contemplate this, but it's, it's measurable and it's true. There is a great wealth of information that is so fascinating in Einstein's theory but for the sake of argument, let's keep it to the basic format. In scripture, God had already provided us with this information in various passages, starting from the creation. In Genesis chapter 1, God creates time. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, stating that there's a time for everything. To the book of Revelation, where God ends and reshapes time itself after the millennial reign of Christ. In Revelation chapter 10 and verse 6. The belief that God in the heaven of heavens was outside of the realm of time and the universe was even held by medieval Jewish scholars such as Mamonides to even the church fathers going back right after Christ. When a person dies, they leave the realm of the physical and enter the realm of the internal. God is the Alpha and the Omega. Christ is the Alpha and the Omega. 
the beginning and the end of time and the picture that is given to us that the universe is laid out before God. Though the universe is now sin-cursed, he still oriented his plan of salvation from the foundations of time itself because he saw what would happen. The Old Testament saints who died in faith did not need to wait in any sort of compartmented Hades because they could go on to meet Jesus Christ right away. This notion does open up a lot of various possibilities that would alter various types of theologies devised by man. For instance, it is theoretically possible that the first saint to have died, which was Abel, remember he was murdered by his brother Cain, to the very last saint just before the second coming of Jesus Christ could literally meet at, at the same time. If you're being changed to something spiritual, God is outside the realm of time and is spiritual, and he's coming to time itself or even uh, showing himself within that. You could literally have the entirety of man being resurrected, boom, at the same time. So you would close your eyes in death at any given point along the timeline, but you would instantly meet Christ all at the same time. Why? Because God is outside of time. He's not bound by our time boundaries. This idea may be hinted at in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 51 through 57. While this is very fascinating, it isn't the subject of the debate, but one does have to pause at the possibility and clarity of Scripture. Either way, the idea of Abraham's bosom or a compartmented part of Hades is not needed to see the grand scheme of God's plan. There are several other scriptures we could take a look at as well. For instance, John chapter 3 and verse 13 says that, quote, And no man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven, end quote. This is directly related to the problem of Enoch and Elijah in the Old Testament. In Genesis chapter 5 and verse 24, and 2 Kings chapter 2 and verse 11, Enoch and Elijah ascended to heaven. Well, that would seem to contradict Jesus' statement uh, later, the saying that no man has ascended into heaven. This could easily be solved that they're the two witnesses that are spoken of in Revelation chapter 11, verses 3 through 10. God, being outside the realm of time, could have taken these men, given the messages that they were preaching. Uh, Jude gives us a very clear uh, picture as to the message that Enoch was preaching, sent them forward in time to fulfill their duties and, and as part of the ministry. There is little doubt that only two pe the only two people that the Bible ever talks about being caught up to heaven in history, the only two in Scripture, would be the ones used in the book of Revelation uh, to be the two witnesses before God and uh, the tribulation, the Antichrist, and all the things that are going on in that time frame. Coincidence? I think not. The theology that Abraham's bosom is a comp compartment in hell for the righteous saints of the Old Testament just does not hold against the scriptures. In the Old Testament, after the fall of man, every saint who believed in faith of the coming Messiah was taken to be with God. This was by faith, as the book of Hebrews spells it out literally, word for word. While this is a whole other podcast into itself, here's a few scriptures that you can chew on for a little bit. 
Job chapter 19 and verse 25 says, For I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. End quote. Also, the scripture that confounds many dispensationalists is John chapter 8 and verse 56. It says, quote, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. End quote. The Old Testament saints understood that the Redeemer was to come. They just didn't know the exact method that he was going to use. By faith, that was enough to be saved. If this doctrine of a compartmentalized hell was so important to our knowledge about how God has dealt with man, then why was this doctrine not addressed and set in stone as other cardinal facts like the nativity, baptism, crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension of Christ? Many less important facts are recorded than this supposed idea. Also, on top of that, we wouldn't have, we, or we sure would have heard more of it until the 1800s. One cannot pick and choose to go, you know, whatever scriptures they want and to try to confirm their theology. That happens a lot. The scripture must stand alone. Don't let your presuppositions corrupt the context. Jesus painted a very vivid picture of the relationship of the man who is in hell and God in heaven. God does not even know your name in hell. The conclusion of the matter is that there cannot be a compartmented place in Hades called Abraham's bosom, and we must not let our theology interrupt the study of God. I want to thank you for listening, and be sure to follow us on the podcast media. Please take a look at our website, OurMightyFortress.com, and subscribe for more updates. Stay tuned next time for more great content, and remember to find your refuge and strength in Our Mighty Fortress.